All right, hello everybody. Welcome to Surveillance Support 66, where we're dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news. This report recaps some of the most notable events in the last week, including, yes, we're gonna talk about the Java exploit that was just recently announced, as well as the Life360 data breach, and many other things. So this was just kind of a messy week, so really tune into this week. Lots of important stuff happened that you should definitely be aware of. I'm Henry from TechLore. I'm Nathan from The New Oil. And today we wanted to mention our crypto stuff. So I'll start with the TechLore end of things. TechLore just started supporting Bitcoin. You can go on our website in the support page. And we now accept both Monero and Bitcoin. We accepted Monero previously, but now we also have Bitcoin. We also set up an open alias. So now if you're using a wallet like Cake Wallet that supports open aliases, you don't even need to get our address. You just send anything that you want to crypto at techlore.tech and then you can send money to us. I gotta look into that. That sounds awesome. Um, over at The New Oil, we have accepted Bitcoin and Monero for quite some time, and we are looking into adding, uh, here in the very near future, adding like Ethereum and Litecoin and Bitcoin Cash. So if you would prefer to use any of those, keep an eye out. Those should be up very soon. And a final thing for video listeners, we published a bonus podcast only episode earlier this week that covered how each of us got our news and actually put these reports together and also some tips we have for you in regards to news consumption. So if you're interested in that, go check us out on the podcast for that episode. It's also on the surveillance support website if you just want to view it on the website. With all that out of the way, we will jump in with data breaches. And we're going to start off with Line Pay, who leaked about 130,000 user data to GitHub of all places, says the headline. So this was published between September and November of this year, and it features data from participants in a promotional program that took place between December of last year and April of this year. This includes date, time, and amount of transactions, plus user and franchise store identification numbers. It does not include names, addresses, phone numbers, card, or bank account numbers, but the article did admit that this could be easily de-anonymized and traced back to specific users. It affected 51,000 Japanese users and 82,000 Taiwanese and Thai users, and they say it was accessed 11 times while it was up. I'm assuming they mean not by people who were supposed to have access to it. Uh, Line took the info down, they did the usual issue an apology, and they, quote, promised to train staff better. Uh, just, that is what it is, data breaches. Up next, the South Australian government has had an employee data breach uh, from Frontier Software ransomware attack. So South Australia Treasurer Rob Luke has said on Friday that the state government employee data had been exfiltrated as part of this ransomware attack on payroll provider Frontier. This affected 38,000 to 80,000 employees, and it includes names, date of births, tax file numbers, home addresses, bank account details, employment start date, payroll periods, and any other payroll-related information. So definitely a big hit for South Australian government employees. And our last data breach of the week is from Cox, who is an internet and telephone provider um, here in the U.S. at least. I, I mostly know them from when I lived on the West Coast, but yeah, they're around. The headline says Cox discloses data breach after hacker impersonates support agent. That's honestly pretty much the only details we have. The compromised data includes customer names, addresses, telephone numbers, account numbers, Cox.net email addresses, usernames, pin codes, security question and answer, and types of service. Of, again, they're offering the one year of free credit monitoring. I, I kind of wrote in the notes, I'm like, should we start taking shots for this in addition to like AWS data breaches? But yeah, and as always, if we learn anything new, we will update you guys. 
It's going to happen when everybody is in a data breach and everyone has free credit monitoring software and then they start <laughs> having data breaches for the credit monitoring software. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I can't wait for that. We need to we need to like bookmark this episode so we can go back and like quote that when it happens cuz you're right, that's inevitably going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen at some point. <laughs> All right, and actually um Kind of on a similar note, not really though, uh, to move on to companies, please listen up if you're a parent. Big news! So Life360 is a popular family safety app used by 33 million people worldwide and has been marketed as a great way for parents to track their children's movements using their cell phones. The markup has learned though that the app is selling data on kids and families' whereabouts to approximately a dozen data brokers who have sold data to virtually anyone who wants to buy it. Some of those brokers that are being indirectly sold to include the CDC and DOD. Hull said that Life360 doesn't share users' private information with insurers in ways that could affect insurance rates. Um, that's based on his word, first off, and also, that's a for now. That's the main story for the week, but I also want to mention that there was a similar story that affected something called mSpy, who is a very similar service, who suffered two data breaches in three years, a few years back, and also there was a service called TeenSafe that exposed teens' IDs. Oh, man, I'm really like, all right. Need more coffee. <laughs> oh, that's right, you're no. a tea drinker. No. <laughs> Sorry, continue. <laughs> um, there's another service called TeenSafe that actually exposed teens' Apple IDs in 2018. So my main takeaway here is these services are dangerous for your kids. Please stop using them. Some alternatives. Try to avoid if possible and build, gasp, a relationship with your child or partner based on trust if you can. The next step from there is some kind of trust system, like something that I've uh, suggested before is you can request someone via signal to send their location to you. You can send a location to someone via signal. So if you two have some kind of system where you, if you can ask to have their location and they provide it to you, then that's something that you can do. Um, if you do absolutely need a, a service like this, you can stick with first party solutions is what we recommend. So Apple has their own parental controls and Find My Friends, which is a very good example of this. Please just do not use third parties for things like this. There's no reason to install third party spy software on your entire family's device, which is only gonna lead to some kind of data breach or privacy invasion down the road. Just please. My cat has joined the podcast. Our next, <laughs> our next couple of stories come from Google. So the first one, um, this isn't really a privacy story, but this is something that I thought was important for people to be aware of. So someone on Reddit reported that they have a Google Pixel and their grandmother was suffering a stroke. So they tried to call 911 and the phone wouldn't dial. And fortunately, you know, the grandmother had a landline, so they were able to call 911. But later on, they went back and did some research and did some testing. And it seems to be an issue with the Teams app because they have Teams downloaded for work. And because of that, there was some issue with Android and Teams that caused the 911 calls to fail. And, like, they failed so bad that uh, when this person called their carrier to be like, hey, do you even have a record of me making this call? The call wasn't even in their record. So the call never placed. Obviously, we're not going to be political, but when I shared this story in my Matrix room, someone made a joke where they're like, oh, I don't need to call 911 because I have concealed carry. And it's... It's like, um, <laughs> you know, good for you if that's your attitude. Like, be, you know, be able to protect yourself. Shoot the injury. And, Shoot but the that was kind of back what, into place. Yeah, that was what we kind of pointed out is like, okay, that works if, like, someone's trying to break in. But what if there's a fire or a medical emergency? So, um, Shoot it. Shoot the fire, Nathan. 
<laughs> I mean, you're probably not going to make it worse at that point. So, yeah. Um, so honestly, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I think it's probably a good idea if you have a pixel or if this just made you paranoid to make sure you're able to call 911 before you have an emergency. Now, um, do not hang up on them and do not say wrong number because some places do have standard procedure where they will send out a car anyways to check. What I would recommend, my cat has left the, the podcast. What, about, what I would recommend is to just very quickly, because they're busy and they got stuff to do, just say, I'm sorry, I read an article today that said that my phone has a bug that prevents some of them from calling 911. I wanted to test it out before I was in an actual emergency situation. I'm, I'm sure they will be okay with that. And, you know, it, it also never hurts to take a CPR and first aid class. So uh, please don't flood 911. But yeah, make make sure, find a way to make sure that your phone is able to dial. And if somebody in the comments has a better suggestion than that, feel free to share it. But that was the best I could come up with. Okay, moving into actual privacy-related Google news. The headline says, Google Pixel mail-in repairs have allegedly twice resulted in leaked pics and privacy nightmare. So we've covered stories like this before. Someone sent in their phone to be repaired. This was an official Google Pixel repair center. Once it arrived, the employees attempted to use the device to access Google Drive, Dropbox, Photos. And, you know, they know this because they, they got, like, the notifications. And they actually went out of their way to hide it. They tried to, like send the sign-in emails to the spam folder and stuff like that. So um, yeah, really crappy. Remember to keep sensitive stuff off of your phone, especially if you're gonna give it up uh, control of it for like repairs and stuff like that. Like I've had my screen repaired a couple times and every time they're like, oh, what's your pin? So we can test that it works. And every time I'm just like, no, I'll, I'll test it when I come to pick it up. Yeah, and just remember like employees are people too. And just because they don't have a face, you're, you're still trusting someone else with that data. So personally, I say don't keep anything sensitive on your phone if you can avoid it. Up next, AWS, Amazon Web Services, has a outage which impacts Ring, Netflix, uh-oh, and Amazon deliveries. So this was a big one this week, and this is just another internet outage because of one company that went down which shot a big part of the world in the foot. The moral here, decentralization is important, and it's something that we very, very much strive for. It's also worth mentioning this is like the fourth time this has happened in the last six months alone. And it's getting to the point where we're both kind of like our internet outages, just valid excuses to like improve your mental health and avoid social media. Um, so just be aware that decentralization is very important and that these services are heavily, heavily reliant on each other to stay awake, which isn't a good thing because of stories like this. I'm not gonna lie, I'm actually proud of myself. I had, uh, the day this happened, I'd been away from my computer, so I hadn't seen the news. But my partner called me and she's like, hey, have you heard about any outages or anything or any hacks? Because like this one app that all my friends use or all of a sudden they're saying they can't do it. And she like looked it up online and she's like, yeah, Disney Plus is out. And like all these places are out. And just the places she was listing, I'm like, I think it's AWS. And then sure enough, I get back to, the, to my computer and check headlines and I'm like, boom, called it. Okay, our next story comes from Meta, formerly Facebook, who has opened up access to their VR social platform, Horizon Worlds. Um, I think this is just something worth knowing. I, I really don't keep up on meta because, you know, they're meta. And so I thought the metaverse was something that was like several years away. And no, it turns out it's already like opening up and becoming in beta. And this uh, article is basically just the reporter outlining their experience. They were invited in to hang out. They got to go to different worlds and do different things. And I mean, admittedly, it does sound kind of nice. Just, you know, Meta owns it. I don't know why. I particularly want to highlight at the end. Uh, one beta tester reported that they were groped in in world, and Meta basically said, "Well, it's your fault for not blocking the person." So we already see how they plan to continue being the same company by 
ignoring abuse and harassment and blaming the victim and just, yeah, so use at your own risk. Up next, iOS users who opt out of the app tracking still continue to be tracked by Facebook and Snapchat. And the second article that kind of ties into this is Apple has reached a quiet truce over iPhone privacy changes. So these are two recaps from the same paywalled Financial Times article so that we're going to go ahead and combine those. It's going to be summed up in this quote. Apple has instructed developers that they may not derive data from a device for the purpose of uniquely identifying it, which developers have now interpreted to mean that they can still observe, quote, signals and behaviors from groups of users instead, enabling these groups to be shown tailored ads anyway. Um, my thoughts, while this is unfortunate to hear, it's really nothing I didn't expect, and it's not something that I don't think most people expected. iOS 14 and 15 privacy changes weren't meant to like fix all privacy issues, but this has still overall, in my opinion, been a very positive change on Apple's end, though I do wish that it was foolproof against these companies trying to find workarounds. Um, there's actually research showing that their changes have actually impacted things mostly positively, but probably not as much as we expected. Our next story also comes from Apple. The headline says Apple is updating AirTags to make them less creepy. They're pretty much only making two changes. The first one is they are finally creating an official Android app so that Android users can detect nearby AirTags. I don't know why they didn't think Android users would care about this, but whatever. And they have shortened the amount of time before the AirTags will chime. So basically, if the AirTag is away from its owner for a certain amount of time, originally 72 hours, then it'll start audibly making noise. And they have now shortened that to between eight and 24 hours. Uh, they didn't really comment on that time range, like who gets what or why or anything like that, but still a lot to go, but at least they're doing something. They are addressing that AirTags are being abused like everyone said they would, and they're kind of taking some actions on it, and that's good. Another story, Verizon is tracking iPhone users by default and there's nothing Apple can do. Here's how to turn it off. So this is another big story, and pretty much the TLDR is Verizon is tracking you, which is something that should be obvious, but some people may not know that, that they do this. Um, the really positive news is that you can opt out of it, though it should be opt out by default, in my opinion, or it should be opt in by default, my bad. Uh, but you do have to go ahead and opt out. So make sure to visit your online account or contact the company to ask about it. The article in the sources is going to go deeper into how to do that. And our last company story comes from Microtech, where hundreds of thousands of devices are still vulnerable to botnets. This is a short story, and I really mainly wanted to share it because there was one line that jumped out at me. It said, the threat actors behind the attack exploited vulnerabilities fixed in 2018 and 2019, but users hadn't applied. So there's no excuse for hundreds of thousands of Microtech devices to still be vulnerable when the fixes have been available for, what, almost four years in some cases? Update your stuff, people. Update your stuff. That was the whole point of that story. With that, we will move into research, and we are going to cover the Log4Shell exploit, Zero Day, which is currently dominating the headlines. Um, you know, people are running around with their hair on fire and stuff. We do want to mention up front, this is an ongoing story that like just started breaking a few days ago. We're still learning the full extent of it, so we will undoubtedly have uh, updates next week, but we'll tell you what we know so far. And I'm going to do that by quoting the article. It's, it's a bit of a long quote, but I think it sums it up really well. A zero-day exploit in the popular Java logging library Log4J2 was discovered that results in remote, control, uh, remote code execution by logging a certain string. 
Given how ubiquitous this library is, the impact of the exploit, which is full server control, and how easy it is to exploit, the impact of this vulnerability is quite severe. Many, many services are vulnerable to this exploit. Cloud services like Steam, Apple iCloud, and apps like Minecraft have already been found to be vulnerable. Anybody using Apache Struts is likely vulnerable. We've seen similar vulnerabilities exploited before in breaches like the 2017 Equifax data breach. Many open source projects like Minecraft Server, Paper, have already begun patching their usage of Log4j2. Simply changing an iPhone's name has been shown to trigger the vulnerability in Apple's servers. So yeah, this is huge. Everybody is rightfully freaking out. And uh, it looks like some people are already trying to update and mitigate and protect from this. From Bleeping Computer, they said that researchers from cybersecurity firm Cyber Reason have released a quote unquote vaccine that can be used to remotely mitigate the critical Apache code execution vulnerability. Lots of takeaways here, but uh, a big one is that there are lots of layers on the internet. I, I think we've talked before about how uh, people use third-party libraries and because it makes developing things easier. Why build the wheel yourself when somebody else has already perfected it? And, you know, any mistake along the way can just cascade and wreak havoc. And unfortunately, you know, JavaScript is, uh, or Java is incredibly ubiquitous and used all over. This is going to be a big deal. And um, uh, like I said, I'm sure we're going to learn more in the coming weeks. And when we do, we will update you guys. Our next research story comes from uBlock Origin, and I thought this was really interesting. Basically, this researcher found a way to use a uh, the CSS in a block list to do malicious things. So, for example, they could plant key loggers or inject malware. Fortunately, this has been fixed. And actually, I want to know how freaking fast uBlock fixed this stuff. Like, if you look at the bottom of the article, they have a timeline, and it, it, like the longest fix took 10 hours. So, uh, the shortest one took just over an hour. So, I mean, uBlock does not mess around. When you find a critical vulnerability, they'll fix it really, really fast, which I think is cool. But yeah, just uh, I, I guess the moral there is to, if you load your own lists into uBlock Origin, just be really careful. And I mean, that kind of goes for anything. When you're, when you're doing anything at all, just beware and make sure you trust whatever it is that you're, you're running, the program or the list or whatever. And our final research one is one of my favorites for the year. Um, and it seems like to be a major favorite in a lot of people in the privacy community. Consumer Reports has conducted a comparative privacy and security evaluation of 16 VPNs guided by the digital standard. So they tested 51 VPNs on Windows 10, and they looked for security misconfiguration and leaks, strong default privacy and security controls, and documentation including their privacy policies, and really everything they can do to figure out how safe these VPNs are. This is incredibly thorough. Um, it did have some minor mistakes here and there, but like 99% of the information is just absolutely golden. We recommend you read through this report yourself because it's that good. But if you want a TLDR, the safest VPNs overall, based on countless criteria and a very thorough investigation, was Molvad, Mozilla VPN, and iVPN. It's worth mentioning that Mozilla VPN is just a wrapper of Molvad, so kind of redundant. The two best providers for a VPN, according to this research, are iVPN and Molvad. Proton and Winscribe also did fairly well up there, um, though Molvad and iVPN did come out on top. Personally, this was a huge compliment for me for the Techler VPN tools uh, because our review protocol matches up with this in-depth analysis pretty darn well. Um, we have Molvad and iVPN in like our top four. Proton and Winscribe also did well for them, and they're also in our top four. So I'm like, yay, what we do like seems to check out. Um, so make sure to check out our open source VPN tools as well if you want to get another resource for VPN stuff. Something else um, that was kind of not talked about too much in like headlines and whatnot, the paper covers some of the very shady practices in the VPN industry, 
like review sites that are owned by the VPNs themselves. So it's just a beyond scammy industry. You all should know that by now. If you don't, just know that it is an incredibly scammy industry. So please do your homework, check out our open source tools and do what you need to educate yourself um, from whatever sources you trust. All right, and with that, we will jump into politics. Our first story is about facial recognition. The first one comes from the New York Times. It says, your face is or will be your boarding pass. And it basically talks about the rise of biometric boarding passes, how it works and stuff like that. It's a pretty good read. Um, there is one line, again, that stuck out to me as interesting. It said 73% of passengers are willing to share their biometric data to improve airport processes, up from 46% in 2019. So. Yeah, in the last few years, we have seen people much more willing to give out their uh, personal biometric data, which the author attributes to things like um, like iPhone face unlock and yeah, just kind of everybody's getting more and more comfortable with biometric stuff, which we've said before, we're not personally fans of, but yeah, it seems it's growing in popularity. And as a real world example, meanwhile, Eurostar, is uh, now allowing customers to opt into facial recognition for faster, uh, boarding on the trains in London. Yeah, just be aware. Again, uh, biometrics are coming whether we like it or not, unfortunately, and yeah. And our next story comes from Microsoft, who has seized sites used by APT15, which are Chinese state hackers. APT15 targeted 29 countries using these sites, mostly uh, based on the map they posted. Seems like they were mostly active in America, South America, and Central Europe, although there was one country in Western Africa as well. And it's believed that they were using this for intelligence gathering from government agencies, think tanks, and human rights organizations. APT15 has been around since at least 2010, and they were using the domains to intercept traffic by redirecting it. So yeah, Microsoft shut those guys down. Up next, very big story. Julian Assange is um, going to be extradited to the US, which is what the court has ruled. So actually this story started back, well, technically it started a long time ago, but in January of this year, the UK ruled that Assange uh, could not be extradited because of his mental health, basically saying he might commit suicide if he gets extradited. They've now reversed their decision based on assurances from the U.S. that he will face humane conditions. Um, some context here, he was wanted for trial for leaking the Iraq War diaries back in 2010-2011, and Chelsea Manning was also involved with this, if that helps anyone uh, remember this story. My opinion here, regardless if you like him, agree with him, want him dead, I don't care. The main thing I care about for this story is it sets a very dangerous precedent for how press is treated in the United States and really the world uh, in the long run. Um, I see this as a massive attack on freedom of press and people bickering about their personal beliefs regarding Assange are kind of missing the entire point of this whole fiasco, in my opinion. I don't know if Nate has any comments on this story. No, I, I agree 100%. Like, um, I'll be totally honest. Uh, my personal opinion, I don't like Julius Assange as a person. Um, I, I like WikiLeaks, and I think he does important work. I just think he's not been the greatest guest at the embassy over the last few years. But, uh, but yeah, like, he, he didn't do any hacking. He didn't steal this information. And, like, we can have a whole different discussion about whistleblowers and ethical disclosure and stuff like that. But the fact is, all he did was report on this. And in my opinion, this that's, like, that would be like if I got arrested because I called 911 to report a crime. Like... Yeah, this is to me, this is just an attack on the press. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning too. Um, I saw a discussion about this online, and some people brought it up. Like, if if Julian Assange was doing all of what he did 
against a country like China, and China wanted to extradite him, the world would be like, hell no. Yeah. No way in hell. Um, so there's definitely a lot of double standards and hypocrisy here with what we're willing to choose uh, freedom of press goes under, which is just, I think, an important discussion to have. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right, our next story has some good news. The European Commission will make its software solutions open source for public benefit. The title pretty much says it all. Um, if you want to read more into it, I think there was also something about a uh, public money for public code, or maybe that's the other way around. Maybe they're going to use public code because it's public money. Anyways, yeah, the European Commission is planning to open source all the software they use. I'm assuming that some of those companies will not want to play ball, so I'm hoping that the European Union will then switch to open source solutions. But yeah, it's just really good to see open source gaining more traction. And I know I've said before, I am a big fan of public money, public code. Like, I think it's absolutely insane that your tax money can be used for proprietary services with no oversight or public vote whatsoever. So I think this is awesome personally. And on a similar note, the new German government coalition has promised not to buy exploits. It's just a quick update from last week, which already had a lot of... Uh, German positivity, but Germany is also making some bold moves and admirable claims here. Um, so we'll see what they do there. And with that, we will move into FOSS news, and we will start with an update from last week's story about Tor nodes being compromised. The headline says, is KAX17, which I think is just pronounced CAX17, performing de-anonymization attacks against Tor users? So despite what some people in the privacy community have been claiming, we don't know for sure who CAC-17 is or why they are controlling a lot of Tor nodes. I'm not trying to let them off the hook. I just, I hate when people say this is definitely what's happening and we don't know that for a fact. That's probably what's happening, but we don't know that for a fact. To quote this article, it says, we have no evidence that they are actually performing de-anonymization attacks, but they are in a position to do so. And the fact that someone runs such a large network fraction of relays doing things that ordinary relays cannot do is enough to ring all kinds of alarm bells. They did also present a worst case scenario. Like if, if you use Tor, what is the worst case scenario that you have used one of their corrupted nodes? And if it's a guard node, you had a 10% chance. If it's a middle node, you had a 24% chance, which is alarmingly high. And if it was an exit node, you had just under 5%. I think it was 4.6. And if you are tech savvy, you can actually help be part of this solution. You can set up your own relay because the more relays are out there, the less chance that you're going to pick up one of those infected ones. There's a ton of great documentation about how to do that. I recommend doing that. I, I will say first call your ISP and make sure that it's not against their terms of service because some of them specifically say you can't do stuff like that. But uh, yeah, if you have sufficiently fast internet, I mean, you can even run one from your computer. Like you can create a VM that every time you're on your computer, you open that VM and it'll do this. You can also use a VPS as well. Yeah, you can. You can rent a VPS and do that. Um, most of them, again, check the terms of service. I, I think most of them will allow guard and middle nodes. It's the exit nodes where things start getting really murky legally. But yeah, again, check the terms of service. Also, another story regarding Tor. Uh, Russia has now officially blocked Tor in Russia. <laughs> so um, ways you can Sorry, help, you can me. send a Tor... <laughs> Yeah, it's fine. Um, ways you can help, send the Tor installer to any Russians you know. You can also run a Tor bridge. And also, don't quote me on this, I'm fairly certain that the Tor project has an email that you can reach out to, and they will respond with an executable that you can use to install a Tor browser. Um, they used to do that. I don't know if they still do that, but I know that used to be a thing. Hey, if nothing else, reach out to me. I'll email you the installer. So Ooh, what a what a what a committed man you are, Nathan. Yes, I am all about getting around <laughs> censorship. So our next story got passed around under the headline Telegram has introduced DRM. And 
myself included, I, I did put that as the headline. But um, that's not entirely misleading. Here's the actual quote from Telegram. With this update, we're helping creators protect the content they publish on Telegram and ensure that it is available only for their intended audience. Group and channel owners who want to keep their me content members only can restrict message forwarding from their chat, which also prevents screenshots and limits the ability to save media from posts. Yeah, so I mean, take from that what you will, if, if that's DRM and evil, or if that's, you know, just trying to help creators protect their, their IP. Uh, a lot of people who commented on this on my Mastodon, they rightfully pointed out that Telegram's client is open source, so there's really nothing to stop other Telegram clients from just not enabling this feature. So it kind of only works on the official Telegram client, but yeah, like I said, take from that what you will. That's that's what they're doing. Um, moving over to, the, to a Telegram uh, rival, Signal. Uh, Signal has ended support for SMS import indefinitely. Wild, wild story. So to the TLDR for this, People who updated to Signal version 5.1.8 realized that you can no longer import SMS um, when you first set up Signal. This would allow you as a user to easily migrate to using Signal as your default SMS messenger and still retain the history from the previous SMS app. So this is a long thread on GitHub, it's in the sources, but pretty much what happened was a Signal developer came in and said they simply weren't happy with their previous implementation of SMS import since it excluded group chats and MMS. So they just decided to eliminate the whole functionality altogether. In my opinion, that's a major like what the fuck moment. Uh, for the record, Signal is still a more than trusted messenger. This has nothing to do with the privacy and security of Signal, but I've been very upset at some of their development decisions lately. Dropping this, I think is a major hit to making this a convenient, simple platform for people to move over to. And side note, this is kind of a personal thing I've had to deal with. Signal still has no ARM64 support for any of their desktop programs. Meaning if you have uh, an ARM device for Signal, you just can't get it from their website. You have to compile it yourself. Um, there's no Mac OS native M1 support. It's just frustrating. Um, I'm just a uh, venting about Signal problems now on this podcast. So you want to make <laughs> it harder for people, which the, that was the whole point of Signal was to make end -to -end encryption easy for people. Yeah, while, while they're at it, just drop <laughs> SMS altogether if they're not happy with their implementation, you know? Like, if you're just going to have the old SMS app on your phone anyway, then just drop SMS support on Signal. I, I don't actually want them to do that. I'm just like... Yeah, no, kind that's of, a huge selling point for Android users is the fact that you can yeah. roll it all in one app. Wow, yeah, it's, that's insane. It's, yeah, pretty ridiculous. I think, um, so I hopefully think my mother used to call that uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Like, oh, we, uh, we can't get this one thing right, so let's just throw all of it out. It's so dumb. Yeah, it, it's very unfortunate. Um, I don't know. Not happy. Up next, Firefox 95 is going to include RL box sandboxing for added security. So this was developed alongside the University of California, San Diego and the University of Texas. RL box is a quote, novel sandboxing technology that uses WebAssembly to isolate potentially buggy code. They've expanded the bug bounty to pay any researchers who can bypass the sandbox, even if they didn't use vulnerabilities in the isolated library, which is very cool. And it means they're willing to back up the security of this product. It also probably brings Firefox um, a lot, lot closer to Chromium's uh, security model, which is very exciting. On similar Firefox news, Firefox Monitor may start removing personal information from the internet. Um, this is kind of all we know right now. Firefox Monitor is, uh, I believe if I remember correctly, at the moment, it's a service that like checks for any breached passwords. But uh, yeah. It's just have I been pwned pretty much. Yeah, basically, which is a great website if you've never been there. I totally recommend it. But yeah, um, they only posted like two questions in their Q uh, FAQ, 
And one of them was, how do we remove your information? And the answer was a really vague non-answer. Like, if you go read it, it's just like, I, it really is pretty bad. But anyways, um, yeah, I'm sure when it comes out, we'll see how it compares to Delete Me, which I know Henry has spoken of very uh, fondly in the past. And, you know, it's just, it's, I guess it's one more way to try and stay on top of keeping your data off public record, which is a never-ending fight. And then just a, a quick story to round out the Mozilla stuff. Mozilla has rolled out GPC for all Firefox users, but enforcement is limited to two states. So GPC is the global privacy control. It's supposed to be the new version of do not track, and it's supposed to actually have some teeth to it. But like the article says, enforcement is currently limited to two states. But yeah, GPC is now available in Firefox. We will see if it does much, but you know, it's worth knowing that's out there now. So California and Colorado, you, you guys... Um, may actually benefit from this. Everyone else remains to be seen. All right, and our next story is going to come from Notepad++, not officially. It says, malicious Notepad++ installers push strong pity malware. The interesting thing I want to wanted to highlight here is that this was mainly spread by unofficial sources. So Notepad++ is an open source note-keeping app, and um, I, I've actually started using it recently. It's really spiffy. I love it, especially with uh, what, like when I'm updating the website and the HTML code and it does all the spacing and formatting. It's, just, it's really cool. It's nifty. But um, because it's open source, there's also a lot of other websites that you know, you can download it from them instead of the official source. This is one of the reasons that we are always saying, like, be careful where you get stuff. Make sure you're getting it from the official source because some of those other sources were injecting malware. Now, for the record... Malicious injections can happen at the official source, but they're a lot less common than this. Um, there are directions in the article for where to go and look and see if you downloaded the malware. Um, there's like three directories, and if you don't find them, then I'm assuming that means you don't have it. Okay, we have three more stories to finish out FOSS, and I want to go through them really quickly. So first, um, ProtonMail is releasing a limited time promo. If you're on the free plan for ProtonMail, or you're thinking about um, getting Proton, there's a way to get one gigabyte for free if you do some things. Just mentioning that if you want to get some extra storage in your ProtonMail account. Up next, uh, PinePhone has announced that there was some malware that was being actively distributed that affected the modem of PinePhone devices. Two quick lessons. Don't install software from untrusted sources, just like what Nate said, because people were downloading things from just random communities. And two, Linux devices are by no means immune to malware and other security problems. So don't get super confident because you're on a Linux device. And the last story, um, Safing.io, which was a service that we reviewed on the TechLore channel, uh, we reviewed Portmaster specifically, which is a really cool firewall tool. Um, they have another tool called the SBN, which is a privacy and security network that aims to solve problems found in both Tor and VPNs. It is now an alpha, and they're making it free for the month of December. So if you're interested in trying out this open source tool, visit the link in the sources. And last but not least, our Misfits section. And unfortunately, we only have one Misfits story this week, and it's... You know, I've been spoiled by our stories of Squirrel Waffle and JRR Token, so this one's not cheeky and funny, but it says phishing attacks use QR codes to steal banking credentials. The particular details of this story are pretty interesting. I recommend reading the article, but the main takeaway here is that, as always, criminals are evolving. And one of their latest tricks is they are using QR codes because when they send a QR code, it is much harder for the security detections to pick up that it's a malicious link. So they'll send a QR code that says, you know, hey, just click here to go straight to the website or, you know, scan the code to go straight to the website. And, you know, that it does whatever it's going to do, steal people's stuff or send them to a phishing site, et cetera, et cetera. So, 
Yeah, um, QR QR codes especially, I think we've been saying for a long time, you got to be careful of because you don't really know what they do. But, I mean, the article points out, like, they actually put a lot of work into this phishing campaign. Like, there's not a ton of grammatical errors, and there's bank logos. And so, yeah, just always, always be alert. And don't click the link. Go to the website separately. Open it and log in. Well, that was the news for this report. There were a lot of things that were either updates to last week or things that still need to be updated. So make sure you're subscribed and make sure you tune into next week's episode. Again, this week is kind of brought to you by our different crypto support methods. Techlore has its own cryptocurrency methods, and we just added open aliases to make it even easier. So check everything out on our website. And Nathan also mentioned he's planning to introduce a lot more cryptocurrencies on the new oil. So make sure to give both of those a uh, visit. We want to thank you for listening to this surveillance support, and we're happy to know you're trying to stay safe out there. The final thing, as always, we ask you to do is to share the podcast around. Make sure you subscribe and definitely give us a rating if you're listening from a platform where that's an option. We want privacy to reach as many of you as possible, and you can directly help us to do that. Thanks again for listening and see you all next week.